0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 5 and 6. Raskolnikov wonders why he had intended to go to Razumihin. Was it merely for work? Was it for alone? He feels agitated, sensing there was something sinister in his intention. Then a fantastic thought comes into his head, and he resolves that he will go to Razumihin after it. He wonders if it is really possible that it will happen, and the thought of going home, where it was for the last month growing up in him, fills him with loathing. He is overcome by a nervous shudder, and he feels a craving for something to distract his attention. He walks aimlessly across a bridge, toward the islands, where all is green and fresh, smartly dressed women stand on verandas, and children run in flower-filled gardens. And still, his mood passes into morbid irritability. He goes into a tavern, where he uses what little money he has to buy a glass of vodka and a pie of some sort. And as he walks away, he is overcome by drowsiness, turns off the road into the bushes, and falls asleep. This dream, we are told, is the sort that is sometimes experienced in a morbid condition of the brain—monstrous, yet vivid, detailed, truth-like, and artistically consistent—such that they leave a lasting and powerful impression on the overwrought system. Raskolnikov dreams that he is back in childhood, walking into the country with his father. They walk past a tavern that had always aroused in him a feeling of aversion— because of the drunken figures hanging about there, shouting, laughing, and fighting. He dreams that they are passing the tavern on their way to the graveyard beyond, the burial-place of his grandmother and a little brother who had died at six months old, whose grave he would always bow down and kiss. In the middle of that graveyard stood an old stone church that he had always loved— In this dream there seems to be some festivity going on at the tavern, where crowds of gaily dressed and drunken townspeople have gathered. Near the entrance to the tavern stands a big cart, drawn by a thin little sorrel nag. A number of big and drunken peasants emerge from the tavern, and one of them, Mikolka, shouts at the rest to get in the cart, saying he will take them all. The crowd of peasants laugh at Mikolka, jeering at him for thinking he can take them all with a beast like that. But still, they all climb in, and Mikolka begins to thrash at her with a fury. A few in the crowd make objection, shouting that he'll kill her, and calling him a devil. But he shouts at them not to meddle, saying that the old nag is his property, and he will do as he chooses." The scene then becomes more frenziedly violent, as the nag struggles, as Mikolka implores two lads from the crowd to hit her in the face and eyes, as the crowd in the cart laugh and sing and whistle, and finally, as Mikolka and others from the crowd grab sticks, poles, and crowbars and beat the mare to death. When someone in the crowd says, you butchered her, Mikolka merely looks back with bloodshot eyes, brandishing the bar, and says, "'My property,' looking regretful that he has nothing more to beat. In the dream, the young Raskolnikov makes his way, screaming, through the crowd to the nag, and kisses it on the eyes and lips, and then flies in a frenzy with his fists at Mikolka. His father then snatches him up and carries him away, saying it's not their business. Raskolnikov then wakes up. He sees in this dream a foreshadowing of it, of the obsessively recurring idea of the plan he had rehearsed, to kill the old pawnbroker by splitting her skull open with an axe. He takes the dream to mean that he could never actually bear to do it, and the thought of it now makes him sick with horror. He begins to feel free, as if he has cast off a fearful burden, and he prays, Lord, show me my path. I renounce that accursed dream of mine. Later, reflecting on what happens next, he sees in it a predestined turning point of his fate, what happens is that he inexplicably decides to return home by an inconvenient route unnecessarily out of his way, and passing by the haymarket, he sees, talking to a huckster and his wife, Lizaveta, the sister of the old pawnbroker. From their conversation, he learns that at seven o'clock the next evening, Lizaveta will be away from home, and the old woman will be left entirely alone. At that moment, he feels in his whole being that he has no more freedom of thought, no will, and everything is irrevocably decided. Raskolnikov had become superstitious of late, and in ordinary coincidences, he was disposed to see something very strange and mysterious. In the previous winter, he had been struck by another coincidence a friend had given him the address of Alyona Ivanovna, in case he might want to pawn anything. One day, he decided to pawn a ring his sister had given to him at parting, and he went to the old woman, for whom he felt an insurmountable repulsion at first glance. On his way home, he went to a tavern. Talking at the next table were a student he had never seen and a young officer— and he could not shake off a very extraordinary impression when the two began talking about Alyona Ivanovna. The student said that Aliona Ivanovna was a first-rate moneylender, but that she was an awful old harpy who takes advantage of her clients and keeps her sister Lizaveta in bondage like a child. He talked about how the old woman had made her will, and that not a penny was to go to Lizaveta; instead all her money would be left to a monastery, so that prayers might be said about her. He spoke of Lizaveta with fondness, and said that he could kill the old lady and make off with her money without the faintest conscience prick. At these words, Raskolnikov shuddered. The student proceeded to make a case for the justice of killing the old woman. He said that on the one hand— There is a stupid, worthless, spiteful woman with nothing to live for, who is not merely useless but is doing actual harm, and who is on the brink of death anyway. On the other hand, there are the dozens of poor families who might be saved from destitution with the money that will be buried in a monastery. He called it simple arithmetic—one death, a hundred lives in exchange. When the officer agreed that she does not deserve to live, but remarked that it is nature, the student argued that great men correct nature. When the officer asked the student whether he would kill the old woman himself, he said, of course not, and declared he was only arguing the justice of it. Raskolnikov was left violently agitated, for he heard the very ideas his own mind had, at that moment, been conceiving. This coincidence had seemed to him something preordained, some guiding hint. Returning to his home after the chance encounter with Lizaveta, he falls into a leaden sleep, and is woken by the servant girl Nastasia, who suggests that he drink some tea and get some fresh air. He answers ominously that he will. Afterwards. Then he lies without stirring, haunted by daydreams of a gurgling spring in an Egyptian oasis. When the clock strikes six, he wakes and jumps up, his heart beating terribly. He is overcome by a feverish haste as he begins his preparations. He fashions a noose, something he had designed weeks before, that will allow him to carry an axe inside his coat unnoticeably. He retrieves the pledge he had long before got ready and hidden, a piece of wood fastened to iron, wrapped and tied tightly to divert the old woman's attention and gain him a moment as she tries to undo the knot. He then descends the steps cautiously to carry out another important part of the plan long ago decided— to steal an axe from the kitchen. Unsettled points and uncertainties remain, such as what he is to do if Nastasia is in the kitchen when he goes to return the axe. But he tries to put off such trifles, and think only of the chief point, until he can believe in it. The moral question was long ago settled. He can find no rational objections in himself." but he finds it hard to imagine that he will, at any point, leave off thinking and simply act. He had at first been consumed by the question of why all crimes are so badly concealed and so easily detected. He had concluded that the fault lay in the typical criminal, who suffers an eclipse of reason and childish heedlessness that overtake him like a disease He decides that he will not fall prey to this disease, because his design is not a crime. He tells himself that he will formulate his plan in the minutest details. But things come to pass quite differently, accidentally, and unexpectedly. When he reaches the kitchen, he finds Nastasia at work there, and he chides himself for being so certain that she would not be at home. He feels crushed, and an animal rage boils inside him. Suddenly, standing in the gateway, he sees through the porter's open door something shining under a bench. The porter is not at home, and he dashes inside and discovers that it is an axe. This raises his spirits, but soon after he is cursing himself for having forgotten to buy a new, less attention-getting cap. He begins walking toward the old lady's house, first trying to distract his mind with irrelevant matters, then endeavoring to think of nothing at all, then trying to quickly dismiss his next thought, that this is probably what happens to the minds of men led to execution. Arriving at her gates, he is able to conceal himself behind a huge wagon driving through the yard. He begins climbing the stairs to her room, his heart throbbing. He sees no one except painters at work in a flat on the first floor, but they do not see him. He reaches her door, listens intently, tries the axe in the noose, and wonders whether he had better wait until his heart leaves off thumping. But it only throbs more violently until he can stand it no longer, and he puts out his hand and rings the bell. He hears the cautious touch of a hand on the lock and knows someone is listening. He moves deliberately and mutters something so that it appears he has nothing to hide. And in a moment that would stand out in his mind vividly, distinctly, forever, he hears the latch unfastened. The next of my posts was called The Dream. Understandably, a lot of the discussion of these chapters in the Facebook group has centered around that dream. That gruesome, chilling, ominous dream. I wanted to research what critics have said about this dream, but there is a danger in doing so. It's hard to find commentary that proceeds chapter by chapter and doesn't take for granted that you have read the work in its entirety. I even have to continually warn people against reading so-called introductions to novels, because they treat readers as if they have just closed and not just opened the book. But since I have read Crime and Punishment before, decades ago, I did do a little research, cautiously, averting my eyes to spoilers. I was amused by the disparateness of the explanations that I discovered, First, I read an astutely written, fascinating article called The Four Raskolnikovs and the Confessional Dream by Amy D. Rahner, professor of law at St. Thomas University. In it, she argues, as you might expect from the title, that there are four Raskolnikovs in the dream. Quote, One, the Mikolka Raskolnikov, who seeks to assert power over and ownership of others through the irrational extinguishment of human life. Two, the Mare Raskolnikov, who feels helplessly trapped and beaten down. Three, the Boy Raskolnikov, who compassionately leaps forth to try to spare a life. And four, the Father Raskolnikov, who swoops in to squelch the child's heartfelt heroic benevolence. Unquote. I will link to the article in the Facebook group, but again, I recommend reading it only later, when you've finished the novel, since it does contain significant spoilers. Another essay I read, by Harvard and Yale English professor William Lyon Phelps, took quite a different perspective on the dream. He said, Dostoevsky is fond of interrupting the course of his narratives with dreams dreams that often have no connection with the plot, so far as there may be said to exist a plot, but dreams of vivid and sharp verisimilitude. Whether these dreams were interjected to deceive the reader or merely to indulge the novelist's whimsical fancy is hard to divine, but one always wakes with surprise to find that it is all a dream. Later, he says, Raskolnikov's awful dream, so minutely circumstanced, of the cruel peasants maltreating a horse, their drunken laughter and vicious conversation, their fury that they cannot kill the mare with one blow, and the wretched animals' slow death, make a picture that I have long tried in vain to forget. These dream episodes have absolutely no connection with the course of the story. They are simply impressionistic sketches." Phelps, by the way, seems in general to be every bit the character he appears in this passage. Check out the Wikipedia page about him for a glimpse of what I mean. So, scholars clearly disagree about how one should approach this dream. For what it's worth, I thought I'd share with you how I think about it. Contrary to Professor Phelps, I do believe that this dream is important. 1st I personally don't have the impression that Dostoevsky is the sort of writer who indulges whimsical fancy. And second, it seemed obvious on the face of it that this dream was intimately connected to the plot, to Raskolnikov's inner turmoil, and, I have to believe, ultimately to the novel's theme. We shall see. What I personally try to avoid is over-intellectualizing my analysis of an element of the story like this dream if the author has written the scene such that I have to make a labored, scholarly effort to link symbols to the characters, concepts, themes, etc. that they represent, then, presumptuous as it might be, I say it's badly written. I don't deny that there can be symbols, and that those symbols can be effective. But I think well-crafted symbols have to be, first, experienced viscerally, and second, easily accessed intellectually. So, I tried to just reflect on the actual impact the dream had on me as a reader, what it made me feel, recall, and expect. I can break that down fairly simply. First, it brought to a fevered pitch the ever-heightening tension of the prior chapters. We had seen Raskolnikov contemplating a crime— This dream allowed us to glimpse what the nature of that crime might be, and to feel, played out in action, what it would be like for him to commit it. Second, elements of the dream were mirrored in the inner conflict we had seen stirring in his soul. It seemed to me that we were seeing his contempt for society in his hatred of the raucous tavern crowd his compassionate impulses in the boy's pain and outrage over the treatment of the mare, his violent impulses in Mikolka's animalistic rage and cruelty, his compulsion to declare it all none of his business in the person of his father, and so on. And it seemed to me that we might ultimately see meaning in his fond recollections of his visits to the churchyard, where he would kiss the grave of his departed baby brother. Finally, it seemed important that the dream prompted him to renounce his plan and to ask guidance from God, and that he was so easily able to turn back to his monomaniacal plan with the prompting of the simplest superstition. The dream will probably take on still more meaning in retrospect, and I'm content to wait. The next of my posts was called Raskolnikov's Psyche. The philosophers among our group might be able to comment, as we go along, on the connections of characters and ideas within this novel to certain philosophic systems. In discussion of crime and punishment, I often hear references thrown around to Kant, Nietzsche, and Hegel, and to existentialism, nihilism, and utilitarianism. I'm not qualified to offer analysis from that perspective. What I always try to do as a reader is to make the integrations and observations that are accessible to me without that context. First and foremost, to heighten my appreciation of and immersion in the novel. And second, to prime myself for an understanding of how those ideas relate when and if I encounter an explanation. To those ends, I want simply to observe some of the patterns in Raskolnikov's Psyche, as they are presented in chapters 5 and 6. First, we often see Raskolnikov confused, his mind clouded, his thoughts and intentions inaccessible even to him. After the encounter with the drunken girl, he felt compelled to go to Razumihin, but he could not recall why, and, quote, he kept uneasily seeking for some sinister significance in this apparently ordinary action, He had to ponder and muse and rub his forehead before, quote, suddenly he realized what he was thinking, unquote. He was surprised to discover, recalling it afterwards, that the moment he stood outside the old woman's door stood out vividly in his mind, since, quote, his mind was, as it were, clouded at moments, and he was almost unconscious of his body, unquote. When Raskolnikov returned to his apartment after his chance encounter with Lizaveta, when the wheels of his crime seemed to have been set in unstoppable motion, quote, he could never recollect whether he had been thinking about anything at that time. Unquote. His are not the impassive and cold blooded calculations of some sort of cardboard villain. That's putting it mildly. The thought of his crime when it makes its way through the fog to the light of his conscious mind, fills him with loathing, and makes him pass into a shivering fever. When he came down the stairs from his rehearsal, he said to himself that, quote, it was base, loathsome, vile, vile, and the very thought of it made him feel sick and filled him with horror, unquote. When he woke from the horrible dream in which he stood witness to his own plan, he felt, quote, utterly broken. Darkness and confusion were in his soul, unquote. He believes with unwavering conviction that from the standpoint of logic and reason, no fault can be found with his crime. He is secure that there is no flaw in his reasoning, that it is, quote, clear as day, True as arithmetic. Unquote. He had long ago become convinced that, quote, as regards the moral question, his analysis was complete, his casuistry had become keen as a razor, and he could not find rational objections in himself. Unquote. For he believes utterly that his design is not a crime. Whether sincerely or as the consequence of some sinister confirmation bias, he is deeply superstitious, seeing in ordinary coincidences some dark proof of the necessity of his crime. His encounter with Lizaveta in the haymarket, quote, seemed to him afterwards the predestined turning point of his fate, unquote. The traces of superstition in him were almost eradicable, and, quote, he was always afterwards disposed to see something strange and mysterious as it were, the presence of some peculiar influences and coincidences. Unquote. The trivial talk in a tavern between the student and the officer quote, had an immense influence on him in his later action, as though there had really been in it something preordained, some guiding hint. Unquote. He holds a conscious conviction that his plan is just. He suffers a sickened feeling that it is loathsome, and through all his confused and conflicted moods, he feels driven along by fate. Returning home from the haymarket, quote, he thought of nothing and was incapable of thinking, but he felt suddenly in his whole being that he had no more freedom of thought, no will, and that everything was suddenly and irrevocably decided, The last of my posts is a poem. In her essay on Raskolnikov's dream, Amy D. Rahner wrote that the boy's compassionate act of kissing the mare on the eyes and the lips, a moment that I found especially moving, was a reference to a poem, Till Twilight, by Nikolai Nikrazov. And she linked to the poem, in Russian, I have looked far and wide but I have been unable to find an English translation. I did, however, discover another of Nikrazov's poems, and it brought me to immediate tears. So though, unlike Till Twilight, it does not relate directly to our story, I thought I would share it with you. I will tell you how I would like it to relate to our story. I would like for some strong, compassionate, loving man to say these words, some day to Sonia. And I will tell you what story it does relate to, another we must someday read, that of Valjean and Fantine in Les Miserables. I can't even think about that connection without shedding tears again. So here is Nikrazov's poem. When from thine error, dark, degrading, WITH WORDS OF FIERY PERSUADING, I DREW THY FALLEN SPIRIT OUT. AND THOU, THY HANDS IN ANGUISH wringing, DIDST CURSE, FILLED WITH A TORMENT STINGING, THE SIN THAT COMPASSED THEE ABOUT. WHEN THOU, THY CONSCIENCE DILATORY, CHASTISING WITH THE MEMORY'S SHAME, DIDST THERE UNFOLD TO ME THE STORY of that which was before I came. And sudden, with thy two hands, shielding in loathing and dismay thy face, to floods of tears I saw thee yielding, o'erwhelmed, yea, prostrate with disgrace. Trust me, thy tale did not importune, I caught each word, and tired not. I understood, child of misfortune. I pardoned all, and all forgot. Why is not then, a secret doubting, still preys upon thee every hour? The world's opinion, thoughtless flouting, holds even thee too in its power? Heed not the world, Its lies dissembling. Henceforth from all thy doubts be free. Nor let thy soul, unduly trembling, Still harbor thoughts that torture thee. By grieving fruitlessly and vainly, Warm not the serpents in thy breast. Into my house come bold and free, Its rightful mistress there to be.